Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel South London. You can visit us at calvarychapelsouthlondon.org. Welcome everyone, my name's Robert and I'm one of the pastors here at Calvary Chapel South London and if you're visiting, welcome. We are endeavouring to make our way through the book of Acts and here, as a church, we make it our aim to teach what they call expositionally, kind of line upon line, verse by verse, because we don't want to miss out on any other good stuff. We don't also want to miss out on none of the difficult stuff, some of the necessary stuff. The Bible says that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God, right? Okay, well, God's word is like food. And if it's like food, very often we've got our favorite types of food. There's certain foods that we stay away from, although those foods are very good for us. Some of us don't like greens, some of us don't like fruit, but them things are good for us and we need a, a balanced diet that the government are telling us nowadays that we need to eat five a day, right? Right. Well, that's, that's one of the reasons we go through the word of God, because we don't want to miss out on anything. We want it all. All of the nutrients, everything that God determines to provide for us. So that means we need to, like the prophet said, we need to eat the whole roll and not take out the bits that we like from the bits that we don't like. Would you turn with me to Acts chapter 9? I apologize about the screen and those lights in front of the screen. The school has lost the key and they can't jack the, the lights up any higher. So I'm sorry that they're kind of in the way like that. <laughs> but we're in the book of Acts and we're looking at the history of the early church. Today we're going to talk about probably one of the landmark events in biblical history. And it's the conversion of Saul. And we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 9, verse 1 through to 22, approximately. See how we get on. I'm going to start reading in verse 1 of Acts chapter 9. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So he so he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, neither 
did he eat or drink? Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. So the Lord said to him, arise and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he is praying. And in a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go. For he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias went his way and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once, and he arose and was baptized. So when he had received food and he was strengthened, then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. Immediately he preached the Christ in the synagogues, that he is the Son of God. Then all who heard were amazed and said, Is this not he who destroyed those who called on this name in Jerusalem? And has come here for that purpose, so that it might bring them bound to the chief priests. But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that this Jesus is the Christ. Since starting this book, we've been introduced to different people, a number of different people. Luke, the writer of this particular book. Theophilus, the one to whom the letter was written. We were reintroduced to the 11 disciples and the other 109 in the upper room. We saw that in Acts chapter 2. Then we saw the, the two potential candidates to replace Judas. Remember? Sorry, this is chapter 1. To replace Judas, who was Joseph called Barsabbas, also called Justice, and a guy called Matthias. In Acts 2, we meet the 3,000 who are converted on the day of Pentecost. In chapter 3, remember we met the man at the gate beautiful. Then we met Barnabas in chapter 4. Ananias and Sapphira, who can forget them too, in chapter 5. Then we met Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, who were five of the seven deacons in chapter 6. Then we met the other two, Stephen in chapter 7, more extensively, and then we spent about seven weeks in chapter 8, particularly looking at the life of Philip, along with, remember, Simon the sorcerer and the Ethiopian official last week. We constantly saw individuals confronted with the opportunity to be converted. This is no great surprise because throughout the pages of the Bible, we see men and women being challenged to make a choice. The Bible is all about people. 
and how they relate to the most important person, which is God. Today we begin to look at the life of another person. A person who actually becomes one of the most influential of all of the New Testament. Saul of Tarsus. Who actually ends up writing about 60 to 70% of the New Testament if you exclude the Gospels. And particularly today, his conversion. This is the most, as I said, famous of all conversions probably in all of church history. Luke the writer is so impressed with this conversion that he includes it three times in this book. Once here in chapter 9 and then twice later on in Paul's actual speeches. And with regard to Saul's conversion, we're going to see five things. We're going to see his rebellion, his recognition, his repentance, responsibility, and his reconciliation. We all will probably see something in that list that we can identify with today. So Acts chapter 9 verse 1. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. The Saul of verse 1 of chapter 9 is the same Saul of verse 1 of chapter 8. Acts chapter 1 Verse 8 says, now Saul was consenting to his death. That is the death of Stephen, remember? Caused by stoning. He was there holding their coats. And also in verse 3 of Acts chapter 8, as for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house completely impartially and dragging off men and to the disgrace of himself, women, committing them to prison. So in Acts chapter 9 verses Acts chapter 8, Saul hasn't changed his MO. He's still, verse 1, breathing threats and murder, particularly against the disciples. And not just any disciples, but particularly the disciples of Jesus. Asking for permission from the high priest. He was a hater in a true sense of the word. And he did this all in the name of God. In John chapter 16 verse 2, the Lord Jesus had already predicted this very same thing, if you remember. He said, you know what, to the twelve, they will put you out of the synagogues. (laughs) They'll put you out of the house of God. And in future, they'll put you out of the church. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers God service. In Acts chapter 26, verse 9, Saul confesses, Indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. This I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints are shut up in prison having received authority, as we just saw, from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Some say that this is proof that Saul had previously been a member of the Sanhedrin, that is the 70, the ruling council. 
Otherwise, he would never have had a vote to cast. And in verse 11 of Acts chapter 26, it says, And I punish them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Saul was a monster, hell-bent on genocide. He was twisted. Saul was actually under the impression that he was living a life pleasing to God, like so many others in the name of God who seem to think that it is a good and a godly thing to kill people on that basis. Saul, we appreciate was actually in rebellion. In Galatians chapter 1, verse 13, it says after his conversion that Saul finally admits this. He says, For you have heard, speaking of the past, of my former conduct. When I was in Judaism, When I was in my religion that I felt gave me the right to kill people. How I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and I tried to destroy it. What a legacy. We're going to see later on as we go through the book of Acts. How difficult it it must have been for Paul to minister to people that he had possibly been guilty of murdering their family members. So often as Christians, we carry burdens that people know nothing about. Ain't that true? And in order not to burden others, you kind of keep that that, that stuff to yourself. And this is bearing the marks. You know, Paul consistently throughout his life looks back in despair at his past and what he's done. And hopefully that's true for many of us in here today. Last week we talked about the fact that you know when you're saved. You know when the Lord Jesus has actually become the Lord of your life because you can mark it. And there's, a, there's an AD and there's a BC in your life as an individual. And we look back, don't we, with regret at those things that we did that actually put Christ on the cross. So we tried to destroy the church. And persecuting believers in Jerusalem wasn't enough for Saul. Verse 2, he asked letters from him, that is the high priest, to the synagogues of Damascus. Evidently, the Sanhedrin, which is the ruling body, With regard to the Jews, the Sanhedrin at Jerusalem claimed jurisdiction over all synagogues everywhere. They claimed the authority of regulating everywhere the Jewish religion. So that if he found, saw, any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Men or women of the way. 
The way is a term that originally referred to the Christian faith. Acts chapter 19 verse 23 says, And about that time there arose a great commotion about the way. Acts chapter 24 verse 22 says, But when Felix heard these things, when Paul was before him, having more accurate knowledge of the way, he adjourned the proceedings. See, throughout the history of the early church, up until this point, they're not even known as Christians yet. We're not going to see that begin to happen until about Acts chapter 13. So the way they refer to themselves is, we're people of the way. And no, it's, it's the way. It's not a way. It's the definite article. I suspect it was a term that originated with the Lord Jesus from, Acts, from John chapter 14, verse 6. Sounds familiar, right? Jesus said, I am the way. I'm the truth and I'm the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I wonder how they came up with that. You know, people in marketing are always coming, trying to come up with new slogans to communicate this new product. Or, you know what I mean? I wonder how they came up with it. Maybe it was the apostles who said, well, you know, based on that verse in John 14, verse 6, why don't we just call it the way? That's how we refer to us. I don't know how they came up with it, but they came up with it, right? Because that is the way that they communicated who they were. Check it. Saul, in contrast to the disciples who were obeying God, Saul was not going in the right way. He was going in the wrong way. Proverbs chapter 14 verse 12 says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but the end is the way of death. It's important that we identify the way. And we get on it. Now at this point, we join Saul moving in this way, moving in this dangerous direction. Acts chapter 9 verse 3. And I'm going to interject extra information based on the other two accounts that give us some added clarity. Verse 3. As he journeyed, traveling roughly 150 miles which would have taken approximately a week, he and a group of others came near Damascus. Now, here's a map of the Middle East. You can see North Africa at the bottom. Over to my left, your right, Iran, Iraq, Iraq in the middle. And right in the middle, there's a little circle that I've put up there so you can see. This is the area that we're dealing with more particularly um, in, in the book of Acts, but then more extensively in other different places. But just so you can get an idea of where we are, the journey from Jerusalem to Damascus, ignore the fact that my arrow's the wrong way around. The journey from Jerusalem to Damascus, as I said, is about 150 miles. Just so you can see the direction and geographically where it is there on the map. And they've traveled this distance. 
And you think, man, you would travel such a distance over such a prolonged, protracted period of time in sun hot without, you know what I'm saying, no shops to be able to stop and get an ice cold drink. And this brother is on a mission. And it says, they came near Damascus, which is obviously north of Jerusalem, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Now, based on one of the other accounts, we realize that it is about 12 o'clock noon at this point. Acts 26, 13 says, the light that shone was brighter. Check it. It's noon, but the, the light that now shines is brighter than the sun at its strongest, which is about noon. How bright was this light that shone on, Paul, on, on Saul and the rest of these other individuals to the point where in the middle of the day in Sun Hot, they could, they, could, they could differentiate between this light and that light. It was such an overwhelming experience that we're not surprised that it blinded Saul. And then the verse says he fell to the ground. And I'm not surprised. Any kind of light that can outshine the sunlight in daylight. <laughs> verse 4, it says, and he heard a voice saying to him, on top of all that, <laughs> Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? If it weren't enough. Saul seeing an extremely bright light. He falls off his horse. And now, hears a voice. And the voice calls him twice. And asks the question, why are you persecuting me? I suspect whoever it was that was saying this had Saul's attention. You know, very often the Lord tries to get our attention, doesn't he? And we act like we ain't hearing him. But then there come those moments, like here for Saul, where we have to confront that voice. Verse 5, and he, Saul, said, who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now here, we see that this incident is multi-layered. Extreme intense flashes of light, similar to lightning. And you know how terrifying lightning can be. I think we had a storm a couple of weeks ago in the middle of the day and it was like, you just saw the every, everywhere. It's funny, isn't it? Lightning, even during the day, will light up the place. Light up my dining room. Like, and as, as the place lit up, we just braced ourselves and thought, what if... If, if, that's the, if that kind of lightning is presenting itself, let's brace ourselves now for the thunder. And then all you heard was this, like, if you know anything about music and sound system, like a, like a 10 ohms bass line just rumble through the, through the place. Lightning's scary. Saul was then blinded by 
this light. By the way, did you know overexposure just to direct sunlight? And remember, we're talking about something more than that. Exposure or overexposure to direct sunlight can damage your eyesight permanently. Wearing dark glasses is much more than a fashion statement nowadays. Especially with the, with the ozone depleting the way that it's depleting, right? You better draw, and you, you better draw for them dark glasses and make sure they've got proper UV and IR protection. That's UV, ultraviolet, and infrared protection. Hey. Dark glasses protect from ultraviolet and infrared rays that can cause permanent damage. Short term, you know, you can't look directly at the sun. Are you mad? You can't look directly at the sun. Even in a solar eclipse or a lunar eclipse, they say, you know what, you've got to have a special pinhole kind of camera, a little piece of cardboard with a hole in it to look at it, or just be careful how you look in it. Because you're looking directly into the sun, and if you look directly into the sun, like I'm looking directly into that projector light, for 10 seconds, directly, you will be blind. Your eyesight will be detrimentally affected. You remember back in the day when we were young, you used to get magnifying glasses, yeah, and, 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 and get a little dried up leaf or piece of paper. You remember what the magnifying glass done to the paper? Some, some of you seditious and evil ones would get little ants. <laughs> ants and beetles. And fry them. Well, that's how the, the, the lens of your eye works. See? Long t- that's short term. That's just looking 10 seconds. Long term overexposure causes eye cancer which can result in blindness and apparently I heard I don't know how true this is but we've got a doctor in the house I can clarify that but apparently overexposure to the light can also cause cataracts I think that's why so many in um, kind of developing countries suffer in that sense resulting in blindness well Imagine looking at something that's brighter than the sun. As recounted in Acts chapter 26, verse 13, at midday, O king, this is Paul saying, just reflecting on his experience later on, O king, along the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining around me, and those who journeyed with me. So he sees this light, but before Saul's retina gets fried, Saul actually saw the risen Lord Jesus, probably in his glorified state. Remember on the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew chapter 17, where Jesus said to Peter, James, and John, fellas, follow me, let's go up on the mountain. Like, come we go. And they went up on the mountain And Jesus stands there like normally. Then all of a sudden, everything changes. He begins to radiate light. And then, to make matters even more terrifying, who's there standing next to him on his right and his left? Moses and Elijah. But what Peter, James, and John saw there for a moment was Jesus 
not even as he really is, but a little bit more. Do you remember when Moses wanted to see the glory of God? He said, Lord, show me your glory. And the Lord's like, you know what? <laughs> for, your, for your own, for, because of my, my mercy's sake, and because of the fact that you can't handle it, what I'm going to do is I'm just, I'm going to shut your eyes, right? And I'm going to pass by you, and then you can open your eyes when I've gone. And when you open your eyes, then you'll see my afterglow. Because you can't handle you can't handle seeing me as I really am. Remember in Revelation chapter 1, see, Jesus existed before he was Jesus. He says to his disciples, I'm going back to the Father. You can only say that if you're coming from somewhere. He's not like us. We were born. We never existed before we were born. We ain't going back. We're going to heaven. You get me? Jesus existed before he was before he was Jesus, and before he, his, he was called or known as Jesus, he was known as who? He was known as the Word of God. John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. You drop down, I think, to John chapter 1, verse 14, it says, what does it say? It says, the Word, thank you, Charlotte, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word Jesus. Now that's now Jesus physically, the one who walked the shores of Galilee, broke bread, healed, shared amazing sermons. That Jesus the disciples got to know, particularly John. The Bible says that John was the beloved. We get the impression that John was the closest to Jesus out of all of the disciples, right? Yet in Revelation chapter one, you remember who wrote Revelation? It's the Apostle John. He, in chapter 1, comes across the same Jesus. But John can't believe his eyes. Furthermore, it's so overpowering, he collapses and he faints. Not because somebody touched him, but because he was overcome and overwhelmed. Or should I say, not because somebody pushed him. And he falls on the floor. Because this... This person that he begins to see has eyes like a flame of fire. I mean, oh my gosh. And his feet are like bronze that have been in the fire. Everything's fire. His hair's white, white as wool. And John says his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength collapses. I'm not surprised, but that's the same Je- oh, no, that's not the same. It is the same Jesus, but you have to understand who he really is. And appreciate him. He laid aside his glory in Philippians it says. But here, he don't lay it aside. And unlike Moses, there ain't no warning. And there's no opportunity to duck or run for cover. And Paul, who at this point is called Saul, is confronted with something that he not only didn't expect, but far from expected. Saul actually saw the risen Lord Jesus in his glorified state. 
What an encounter. Having the Lord Jesus literally appear to him. You see that in verse 17. So, Saul is now on the floor, trembling and utterly humbled. I mean, what happened to the big talk? What happened to the, come on men, we're going to Damascus. What? Utterly humbled. The Lord Jesus then says, every time, Saul, you persecuted, every time you killed, every time you tortured, every time you afflicted one of mine, you actually did it to me. Saul, I took every single one of them occurrences personally. And I've come to have a chat with you. I mention it all the time. You hear people say, you know what? Believe in God. I don't believe in no God. Furthermore, you know what? I can't wait till I see God so I can, so I can ask him. <laughs> I, you know, I, somehow I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think so. You will be just like Saul here is. And I think that the fact that he got knocked off his horse and blinded is mercy. Really, a lie? Really, this is, this is, this is the mercy of God. Because if, if the Lord was to unleash himself in a true sense, the brother would just disintegrate. I took it personally, Saul, on every occasion. In Matthew chapter 25, we heard the Lord Jesus say that, didn't we? He said, if you did it to the least of my brethren, you did it to me. That is if you're good or if you're bad. He said, so it is hard for you to kick against the goads. You have been firm in it. You have been This is a picture of oxen plowing, and it's the best representation I could find to describe what a goad is. Really, there was hardly anything available. The goad is a traditional farming implement used to spur or guide livestock, usually oxen, which are pulling a plow or a cart used also to round up cattle. It is a type of long stick with a pointed end, also known as the cattle prod. God was evidently trying, up until now, in an invisible yet powerful way to, write, to redirect this man's life. Just like a farmer would when he's got work to do, it's like I've got this whole field to plow and you don't want to move. All right then? And he would juke the ox with the goad. Now, if the ox has got any sense, it would respond to the goad. But you've got some ox that want to try and 
switch positions. Like they should be sitting up where the farmer's sitting or standing. And the farmer should be like, why are you poking me? Why are you prodding me? I'm not going... Not only am I not going, I'm going to kick against this gold. Like, who you think you are about your juking me up now? That's a gold. And, and the Lord Jesus says to Saul, I've been trying like a farmer to get, a, get, to get the job done. And really and truly, you're a blessed ox. You get me? I mean, you could be out there trying to find grazing no one looking after you taking care of you i'll give you oats to eat i mean you you live in a in a in a building i'll give you water i take care of you and now you, i scratch your back you're supposed to scratch mine now would god be unfair if he said that to every single one of us i mean the bible says that god makes the sun to shine on the righteous and on the unrighteous. We know that there are those that don't know God, don't want to know God, resist God, and he still blesses them. And the Lord says, particularly with you, Saul, I've been trying to get your attention. Yet rather than respond and repent, Saul would only resist and rebel. See, the Lord doesn't necessarily have to appear to us in blinding, lightning type fashion for us to know that he's trying to get our attention, a lie. And like the ox, when we kick against those goads, when we kick against his pricking and his prodding, we only end up damaging ourselves. You end up with a, a bottom full up if you're an ox. And I think ox is good because ox describes something that's, that can be stubborn and strong. See, and we end up damaging ourselves. How do men do this? They do it by one, violating clear commands of God. You know, when you sin, when you break the commandments, I heard someone say, you don't break God's commandments. God's commandments break you. You know what I'm saying? You're married and you're committing adultery. There ain't going to be no laughing. There ain't going to be no party. There ain't going to be no champagne popping in the next five or 10 or 15 years time. There won't. Try and break the commandments. And think that it's all good. At the end of the day, this is, this is my life. How dare anybody tell me how I should live my life? See, so you break those commandments and eventually, eventually, there comes a time where you will regret, you will regret it. You know, I said the only difference between Christians and non-Christians is non-Christians, they want to have fun and they want to have it now. Christians, they want to have fun, but they're prepared to wait for it. And they're prepared to have fun God's way, not their way. Violating, violating God's clear commands. That's one way 
that we kick against the goads. King James says kick against the pricks, right? Another way we do it is by attempting to resist his claims. You know, in Romans, it talks about those who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. The cork wants to come up, but you're going to force that thing down. And then act like it's not there and act like you're not holding it down. Free by refusing to do what their conscience requires. It's powerful, man. That's why as believers, you know, the Bible encourages us to try to persuade people who don't know the Lord. It encourages us to wrestle with them a little bit. You know what I mean? To question them and challenge them. But, you know, it's not for us to browbeat people or point the finger at people and condemn people and judge people like that. You know what? You don't have to do that. The Bible says that Jesus himself said, when I'm going, he says, someone else is coming to replace me. And he's not going to be like me in the sense that he's only going to be in one place at one time. I can only be in one place at one time, Jesus, when he was in his earthly body, right? But he says, I'm going to send a spirit. And when he comes, he's going to be omnipresent. That means he's going to be everywhere at the same time, heavy. And he's going to go on, Jesus says, he's going to convict the world of righteousness, of sin and judgment. So, we don't need to try and wrestle people to the ground. Someone said that a skeptic convinced against his will is a skeptic still. We just got to share the word with them and just, hey, all right, praise God. You know, all right, what can I say, my brother, my sister? And just leave them to the Lord. Everybody has to go to sleep at night. And in those moments when they're alone, when they ain't around their brethren, it's like, what? Come out here with that nonsense. When they're at home on their own, in their bed at night, and it's dark, and lightning strikes. <laughs> the Lord would deal with them with regard to their conscience. It's a powerful thing, the conscience. Fourth, how else do we do this? That is, kick against the gods by grieving the Holy Spirit. By attempting to free themselves men do from serious impressions and alarms the Holy Spirit gives those impressions and the alarms go off in our heart and in our mind when we're confronted with choices and we know that we shouldn't it's nah, 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 in our conscience but we, we suppress that but then when we step across the line that we ought not to now we end up grieving the Holy Spirit and very often the Holy Spirit, when he's grieved, what he does is he just, he just leaves you alone. Like Samson. Remember? Samson was very strong physically. Hench, brother. And he kept on resisting. Well, he, he, he did everything that we see here. Breaking and violating God's commands. Attempting to resist. You know what I'm saying? God's claim over him as a man. Come on now. You're supposed to bow the knee to God in, in humble submission and be grateful for the air that you breathe, right? But not Samson. He's doing his own thing. Refusing to do what his conscience was requiring him to do and grieving the Holy Spirit to the point where the Holy Spirit says, you know what, safe. <laughs> All right then. I'm God. I'm trying to help you. You don't want my help. Okay, fine. And the Bible says that the Holy Spirit leaves him and he didn't even know it. 
Be careful. Be careful that you don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Fifth, by pursuing a course of vice and wickedness against what men know to be right. Pursuing, not just, okay, well, you fall into sin or into temptation and you're like, man, I'm in this position. I know it's wrong. Like, get out of there. The Lord will forgive you. No, pursuing a course of vice and wickedness. Six, by refusing to submit to the dealings of providence and refusing to submit to God's authority. These are the ways in which we, like Saul, kick against the goats. Kick against his invisible influences and alarms. Saul, at this point, he finally, finally arrives at a place of recognition. Verse 6 It says, so he trembling and astonished said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Isn't it interesting to see what a little gentle persuasion can do? Why do we resist stiffening our necks and hardening our hearts? Most of the time, we do it to each other. Not cognizant of the fact that we are actually doing it to God. We don't shake our fist at God often. We shake our fist at one another. We cuss one another. Don't we? We get angry and begin to seethe with regard to that person. Not realizing that that person is made, is constructed, that woman is constructed in the image of God. You know, we as believers... We're a body. If we hate on another member of the body, it's like me beating up on myself. That's, that's, that's ridiculous. Yet we do it all the time. Paul talks about the fact that sometimes we bite and devour one another. He says, be careful that you're not, you don't end up being consumed by one another. It's like, it's cannibalism. And we do it as quote-unquote brothers and sisters and we even do it as, as married couples sometimes, don't we? Sometimes our spouse is the person that gets it the worst. To the point where they've got to turn around and say, you know what? You've got so much mercy and grace for others, but the way you handle me, I never see you handle anybody like you handle me. Now that's some insight if you ain't married to some of the stuff that goes on in marriage. And what is happening is we're, we're, we're forgetting, we're neglecting the fact that that person, whatever they experience, offends God. Whatever pain and suffering they endure affects God. Let's try and bear that in mind. So, <clears throat> Saul now recognizes this. And reacts by being responsible. Responsible. I think I heard, was it Shabbat say one time, 
His definition was res of responsible was being able to respond. And how many of you know it's so easy not to be responsible? It's so easy to put the blame on somebody else. It's so easy rather than say sorry, it's easier to point the finger. But responsibility says, you know what? I dropped the ball. I failed. I made a mistake. That's me taking the actions and rather than allowing those things that we attempted to relinquish as not belonging to me taking responsibility and you know Jesus is the classic example of someone taking responsibility because it's one thing taking responsibility for your own actions it's a completely different thing taking responsibility for someone else's actions and that's what Jesus done when he came and he said I never sinned but I'm going to take your sin that's the, that's the amazing. How many of you know, let me just interject. How many of you know that at this point, as we're looking at Saul, busted and broken, right? How many of you know that part of the process of him coming to this point, right? I would suggest is his sickness. How many of you know that he's blind now? How many of you know that when you're kind of fully functioning, you got your health, it's like you act a certain way. There's a certain arrogance, but you get hit with sickness. I mean, you get hit with sickness. Whether it, I, mean, I mean, they say, look, men are worse than women, they say. Man flu. Man, some of us, I'm not going to say you, some of us, we just get a cold, yeah, and we're like, oh, 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 oh. I remember I used to work in the post office years ago. There was a guy, we used to work on the platform. The bags would come in from the vans, and they'd dump them, piles of them, especially at Christmas. And we'd have to hump these bags, mash up my back one time, hump these bags, yeah. And there was one brother on the lobby, that's what we used to call it, and he weren't doing no work. It was like, yo, come on, man. Look at all. The... You can't not see all these bags. They're not going to jump into the things. Come on, do some work, man. And the brother's here, the brother. Oh, I can't, man. We're like, what do you mean you can't? He's like, I've got a coldy woldy. <laughs> we was like, Phil, you need to fix up, bruv. Trust me. Man flu. But all you got to do is get sick. And that's just a minor thing, and you see the effects, let alone when you get hit by something serious. See, sickness very often can lead to desperate humility. And without taking the liberty to develop this, I think very often, and I know if I said this in certain churches, they would literally throw me out. Literally. Grabbed me up and throw me out. Call security. 
if I said this in certain churches, but I'm a, I think very often that God allows sickness. And sometimes we can be found to even fight against God when we're commanding sickness to depart in the name of Jesus. Now, I'm not saying that we ought not to pray for those who are, not, who are sick. I would be contradicting the Bible. James says, when someone's sick, sick, you call for the elders of the church. You lay hands on them and you pray for them that they would be healed. But you're praying that they will be healed according to God's will. I mean, I don't care. I don't care what kind of evangelist you are and how many... Even if you've got a, na- a ministry named after yourself, right? You could have prayed for Job and, and laid hands on him and rubbed his hair off his head. He wasn't going to get healed. Am I lying? So I'm, I'm just saying there are times when it happens. And I know in my own life personally, when I've been laid out, it brings a different kind of humility into my life. When I'm sick, I never shout at my wife. I mean, I ain't got the energy to, right? But I would ne- how could I be on my back and she's bringing me soup and hardo bread? Right? When I'm not well. I, would, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't even think about shouting at her. But yet, when I'm, when I'm all right, I want to know how come this and how come that, right? So, here Saul is blind and broken. He says, Lord, which means master, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, not what we would do. I mean, I would circle the brother now. I'd be like, I'll be like, yeah, I'll be like, all right then. So what? After all that talk, all of that, all of the action, all the stuff that you did and said, and all right, you don't really look like much now. What? That's that's me. That's what I would. That's what I would. That's what I would be tempted to do. But not the Lord. The Lord doesn't even mention it. He doesn't even mention the long litany. I mean, there ain't, there ain't a scroll that's long enough that could have listed the things that this man had done. Very often when somebody does something against us, we will fight and argue and for hours. <clears throat> Why are you arguing? Because they won't apologize. And then... When they eventually apologize, you still want to go on. Like I prayed, we need to take our cue from our Father in heaven. And the Lord said to him, arise and go into the city and you'll be told what you must do. Isn't it interesting how the Lord for a moment can 
and sometimes will use supernatural influence like he just did. Sometimes. He can and he will do that. But it seems as if God prefers more often to use more natural means. I mean, it's like the Lord had to pull out all the stops, as it were, to get this guy's attention. But now he's got his attention. He doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't still feel the need to throw lightning bolts and like Zeus. You get me like Aladdin. Remember when he, when he rubbed the thing and, and the big old um, genie comes out. And, the Lord doesn't feel the need to continue like that. He's like, okay, boom, I've got your attention now. Let's go back to kind of the way I would deal with individuals on a more natural basis. That's why we can't be enamored with the supernatural. Be like feeling like, oh, unless, you know, God writes something in the sky. Or if I turn on the tap and blood comes out. It's like, if that don't happen, we feel like, oh, well, I'm not really sure that I really believe in God. That's so, that's so immature, particularly for a Christian. You know what I mean? Oh, I really don't feel like the Lord loves me. So unless two buses come along at the same time in the next five seconds, I will go through my day convinced that the Lord don't love me. See? The Lord can and sometimes uses supernatural influence, but prefers more often to use more natural means, like speaking for a human vessel, for the foolishness of preaching. God could rip the skies open and traumatize you this afternoon. But rather than do that, he might choose to speak to you for a donkey like me. The Lord says, no, I'm not going to tell you directly what you must do next. So you don't get into the habit of feeling like I got to speak to you audibly. But I will tell you indirectly for a process called discipleship. So, now with absolute clarity, has to make a choice. Verse 7. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless. Hearing a voice... But seeing no one. So this experience was, was potentially personal to Saul. They didn't see the Lord Jesus, but he did before he got blind. See, they are dumbfounded witnesses who had originally all fallen to the ground, it says later on. Struck by the same light, albeit not blinded. Wow. It's like Moses standing at the burning bush and, hmm. How comes this tree ain't getting consumed? But fire would normally consume. He gets blinded, but these don't get blinded. He hears the voice. They hear the sound of it, but they don't see the person. And now they have recovered and are standing on their feet. They begin to silently assimilate the moment. Verse 8, then Saul arose from the ground. (laughs) And when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. Now that sounds like a contradiction in terms. His eyelids were functioning, but his eyeballs were not. But, or, therefore, they led him. 
by the hand and brought him, verse 8, into Damascus. How embarrassing. This mighty, heartless persecutor of men and women is now tripping over stones because he cannot see where he's going. And now having to lean and depend on others. Having to be led like a child. If God wants to break you, it doesn't take much. All we got to do is have a little bit of heavy rainfall and everything in London grinds to a standstill. A little bit of snow and it's over. We lose 50 billion pounds off of the economy because no one can go to work. It don't take much for God to bring us to our knees. Having to be led like a child. It could and probably will happen to all of us. If not through sickness, old age. Yesterday, walking down Sydenham High Street, I saw a gentleman, possibly in his late 60s, early 70s, being held by both hands, seemingly by his wife, standing in front of him, helping him as he shuffled between the traffic lights, trying to cross the road. Someone once said, be careful how you treat your children because it is them that will choose your care home in the future. Old age and possibly sickness can come to any of us. Oh how the mighty have fallen. Look at the state of this man. It's like when I went to see my dad after not wanting to go and see him for years. Hate. I hated my dad, as I've told you once before. And it was my wife that convinced me, Robert, you're a Christian. I was like, and? Well, Christians are supposed to forgive. Oh, well, okay. Especially your dad. And I went to see my dad after never seeing him for years. He was living in, I think he was living in Nottingham at the time. We went up. I couldn't believe it when I saw him. I mean, I'm 5'11", 5'10", 5'11", or so. I'm not a short brother. My dad was taller than me. He was at least six foot, at least the time when I was young. When you're little, everybody looks big, right? But when I saw him, he was bent over, and he was shaking violently. My dad, when I saw him, he couldn't even hold a cup of tea. Yet he was the man that used to knock my mum down the stairs. Oh, how the mighty have fallen. And it wasn't long after that that my dad died. Thank the Lord that I got a chance to go see him and forgive him and pray with him. He accepted the Lord. I mean, just like Saul, what other choice do you have in that state? Verse 9, and he was three days without sight. And he neither ate nor drank. He either ate nor drank. 
possibly fasting in the true sense of the word. You know, very often we fast, we're like, okay, I'm not going to eat no lunch today. And not because we, not because we, well, let me say it like this. Paul was fasting, not because he won't eat, because he can't eat. His, his mouth wasn't affected, his eyes were, but he can't eat at this point. He's overwhelmed with his circumstances. And I think the blindness was secondary. He's confronted with now, oh my gosh. Every single person that he persecuted and murdered as he looked in their eyes, it's all coming back to him now. The man, it's not even that he, he, he won't eat. We want something to eat. Oh, no, I think I'll, no. He, he can't eat. This is fasting. It's not when, you know, blah, 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 shall I, shall I, shall I, shall I, shouldn't I? It's when you're consumed with an issue and food is despicable to you. He's overwhelmed by his circumstances. Now, we see a scene change. Verse 10, I'm going to try and be brief and not rattle through this, but we need to conclude. So, scene change, verse 10. Now, there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him, the Lord had said in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. So the Lord said to him, arise and go to the street called Straight. Go to Straight Street and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he is there praying. And in a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias, you, coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. So you need to go down there forthwith Ananias. But Ananias answered and said, Lord, I mean, Lord, you're my master. It's not even like I'm trying to backchat you or anything. But I've heard from many, not just a few, many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints down in Jerusalem or up in Jerusalem. It's south, but it's up. Verse 14, and here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. There's so much in here. With regard to the relationship that we have with the Lord, and even those times when he's calling us to do something, we rest it, oh Lord. But you know, he's going to end up going anyway. But you have those moments where you wrestle with the Lord, right? Naturally, we detect a slight hesitance on Ananias' part. Verse 15, but the Lord said to him, go. This ain't debatable. Go. Is the Lord speaking to you like that? Go. Is he asking you to do something or go somewhere? Go. For he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. This brother has got an amazing call on his life. Like so many of you. For I will show him how many things, uh-oh, he must suffer for my name's sake. You can never separate the two. God's got a call on your life. Brace yourself. You know, people hear about, oh yeah, the Lord's going to use you to do this. Oh, amen, praise the Lord. And hey, that needs to be balanced. There's going to be a lot of difficulty, a lot of struggling in order for that butterfly to come out. 
wish I could tell you a story about the butterfly, but I can't. But the Lord said to him, go. I need, to, I need to show him what he has to experience for my name's sake. By this time, what the Lord is speaking to Ananias, right? By this time, Saul has arrived at his destination. Whether he had originally planned to go there, that is straight street or not, that's where we find him. Verse 17, and Ananias sent, went his way and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, look, he doesn't refer to him as enemy. He doesn't look at him out the corner of his eye like. He says, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you personally on the road as you came, has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Verse 8, and immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales. So he evidently had been terribly affected by this light. Again, who knows, maybe some kind of cataract type thing. And he received his sight at once, immediate miracle. And he arose and was baptized. Verse 19, so when he had received food, I suspect at this point, Saul's feeling like, wow. I mean, imagine three days, he's probably been in turmoil. Yet, the goodness and the forgiveness of God in the midst of that turmoil. He's been overwhelmed by it. Now, because maybe to some degree he's been able to accept the goodness and the forgiveness of God in light of his sin, now he can eat. Now he's got peace. And he's strengthened. And Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. Now we're going to talk more about discipleship a little later. But just note that. Verse 20, immediately he preached to Christ in the synagogues. What, in the same synagogues saw that you were dragging people out of? Yeah, same synagogues. Now preaching that. A different message. That Jesus actually is not who I thought he was. He's actually the Christ. He's the son of the living God. Here we see a complete picture of not only Saul's repentance, that is the change in his thinking that leads to a change in his actions, but also we see reconciliation. Where Saul now comes into perfect union with the God that created him. Reconciliation, which is a bringing together of God and man. Based on the sacrifice of Christ. Even to the point where Saul will later on say in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Now then, we, including himself, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. That's his testimony now. I've been reconciled, he can reconcile you too. Then verse 21, all who heard were amazed. And said, is this not he who destroyed those who called on this name in Jerusalem? And surely he's coming for that same purpose. So that he might bring them bound to the chief priests. But Saul, he increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus. Proving that this Jesus is the Christ. 
Saul the rebel recognized his human responsibility before a holy God. He repented and he was reconciled. Amen. Amen. May that speak to some of us today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for example after example after example of your goodness and the light of man's wickedness. Lord, every single one of us can identify with that today. Apart from little Azalia. She will identify with this. But Lord, we're so grateful that you're merciful. And Father, just like baby Azalea, that's what we're like, Lord. Yet we get so enamored with ourselves thinking that we're more than that. Thinking that we're something. When Lord, we're, we're, we're nothing. And I say that, Lord, with regard to our being able to do anything or be anything. We're only here for 70 years. What's that? But Lord, when we, when we as rebels recognize our true state before you, when we take responsibility for our actions and we own up and we say, yes, you're right, God, and I'm wrong. Thank you in that moment of repentance. You just lavish us with your forgiveness. Father, I pray that you'd lavish somebody today with your forgiveness. In light of their wickedness, in light of their badness, in light of their past. And let it be that, let it be the past. For today can be a new day. I pray that someone will be reconciled to you today, Lord. Through the sacrifice of Christ. And they would be able, like, like Saul who became Paul, who could reflect on his former life, that they'd be able to do the same. Lord, remind those of us that have had that experience that we're living a new life. If any man be in Christ or woman, is a new creature, new creation, old things have passed away and behold, all things have become new. Help us to remember that, Lord. Whether we've been saved for five minutes, five years or 50 years, Lord, that we were just living a light, not the lightning strike, blinding type light, but the wonderful warmth of the light of your spirit. In Jesus' name, for Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. Amen. Would you stand with me, please? So now, brethren, this is taken from Acts chapter 20, if you didn't know. So now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up. Lord, I pray that we would, we would have felt built up today. And, and give you an inheritance among all those who are being sanctified. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face in a good sense, shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and look at you kindly and give you peace today, this week and for the rest of your lives in Christ. Amen.